Quick disclaimer. Although what we say is evidence and literature-based, we don't know your personal details and situation. Therefore, make sure you're discussing these things with your doctor. Welcome to the CPR for Life podcast. I am Sagar Doshi, boarded and practicing lifestyle medicine physician and emergency medicine physician. Joined by... Zach Hermosis, boarded and practicing emergency physician and practicing lifestyle medicine physician. All right, welcome back, Zach. Today, we're going to talk about a new pillar, another way that is instrumental in how to prevent and reverse chronic disease of life. Why don't you tell us what we're going to get into today? It's one of my favorites, not because I'm excellent at it, I just enjoy doing it. And uh, you actually did this this morning. Exercise. You already uh, you already knocked it out. It's, it's you know, what time did you go to the gym today? Uh, time to get there. I got there at 8.30. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty solid. I haven't yeah, worked out yet for today. an hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm recovering from an uh, an injury. I've been out of the gym for about two months, and because of it, I've dropped 15 pounds, and that's very distressing to me. I mean, I'm very, but I don't like it. So now I'm back in after some physical therapy. So two things: one, you're one of those people who loses weight when you don't exercise. Yeah. So am I. It's it's. I guess for some people, they always tell me, oh, I love to have that problem. But yeah, I, I get, I don't like the problem. Uh, and then what was your injury? Just my trapezius just got real strained. And so now every time I try to move my neck, it's very painful. Yeah, that's a frustrating one. <laughs> that's for a separate time. That's one of the complications of exercise. But I imagine that the complications to not exercising are a lot bigger. Yeah, let's talk about that. So there's, I mean, everybody knows that there's inherently, I think that there's some benefit to exercise. I don't think many people would argue that it's good to be sedentary. Uh, between this podcast and the next one, we'll talk about the benefits of that and then what exactly the literature says you should do in order to be healthy, I guess is the, for lack of a better term. But so just real quick, what do you name some things that you think can happen if you don't work out? Death. <laughs> Death is. Yeah. Heart attacks. Uh, uh, let's see. Poor sleep, definite fat gain, loss of muscle, um, you know, huffing and puffing, shortness of breath. It's much more easy to come by. Deconditioning in general and anything that comes with that. Ooh, I'm going to go say worse cognition, worse ability to think, worse memory, uh, worse mood, rougher connections to people since we did just leave that. Because if you're in a worse mood, the people around you are going to be in a worse mood too. And that's just not going to play well together. <laughs> that's what I got off the top of my head. Yeah. So basically all the stuff that comes from, you know, all, all the stuff you initially said from having, car, you know, vascular disease. So, you know, the dementia and the blood pressure, kidney disease and all, all the metabolic effects that come from that. Uh, and then you could certainly make the argument that not even just a lot of times when we exercise, we're doing it socially as well. Not always, of course, like, you know, I, I usually work out by myself. But a lot of people work out socially with other people, which is kind of nice. Uh, in a post-COVID world, that will be even nicer. Um, but yeah, I think you pretty much nailed it. So in order to do what we usually do, we'll highlight the things that happen when you're not doing the thing that we're recommending that you do to start. So if you look at people who... there's all, The problem with a lot of these studies is, first of all, let me, let me be clear. There's a lot of studies that they've looked at that talk about people who work out versus who don't work out. A lot of these are questionnaires. 
it's hard to quantify this stuff unless you get people in a specific regimen and then you have to trust that they're following that regimen because obviously you can't have people studying people while they're in the gym and seeing how many reps they're doing or how many, you know, how long they're running. So uh, there is some degree of, um, I, I guess, wiggle room with how we're interpreting this, these data. But, but there are studies in, where they do force these people to work out under supervision. There are. They're smaller powered studies. Sure. Um, but when you, so when you're talking about the big population, uh, you know, for example, we, you were just, you know, we were just talking about some of these studies beforehand. Um, but there's a study of 27,000 people that they looked at risk of coronary disease or, or cardiovascular disease, I guess, in general, in overweight and obese people uh, and compared them controlled studies for the people who met physical activity guidelines. And we'll talk about what those are later uh, versus didn't meeting or not meeting physical activity guidelines. And the people who, even if you were overweight, if you met those guidelines, you had a lower risk of, of cardiovascular disease. Even if you're still overweight, the, the working out made a difference. So meeting those guidelines, regardless of your risk stratification going into it, was improved uh, as opposed to doing nothing. But again, it was a 27,000 person study, but it was an interview wow. asking about housework, walking, sports uh, in the past four weeks. So how biased mm -hmm. is that among the, the answers? I don't know. Uh, the, the data seemed to work out to where we'd anticipate that they would, but does that play in with the bias? I don't know. But again, I would think that it seems to reason that the, the, the trend is the same across a lot of these studies. Um, there was another one uh, among 40,000 people uh, that were interviewed. Actually, take that back. 55,000 people because there were 40,000 men and 14,000 women. Um, runners had a 30 to 45% lower adjusted risk of all-cause and uh, cardiovascular disease mortality with a three-year life expectancy benefit. Um, Again, it was a questionnaire where they asked about duration, distance, frequency. Uh, so they did better. But again, we don't really know how, how like when people ask me how much I run, I tend to give them a general like, ah, you know, about this. And it's not it's never quite accurate based on that, that specific month that I've run um, because I'm just kind of adding it up. Um, but yeah, do you think you overestimate or underestimate? Because my thought is that if people are going to be biased towards overestimating how much activity they report. They give themselves a favorable recall. I would bias. assume that's what it is. Yeah. So people are probably overestimating how much they run. So Which, if that's the case, right, that's even better news for the yeah, interpretation of this. Yeah, it would be for sure. But it still leaves inaccuracies, I guess, is the point. You know, you still don't necessarily yeah, know. Definitely, because we don't even know if that's true. Right. Um, and, and there are a bunch of these. Um, you know, another 130,000 person study, uh, moderate or high physical activity levels had a lower risk, risk of major uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, same, you know, I, I can go on and on here. There's, there's about, you know, walking pace, distance, leisure time, physical activity and exercise intensity were associated with risk of lower uh, coronary heart disease, stroke and cardiovascular disease, among another study with another 4,000 people. I mean, there's a ton of these studies that show, and these are specifically looking at cardio, coronary disease and cardiovascular disease in general. Um, but again, they're all self-reported. The, these specific studies were, and they're all powered halfway decently, so we feel good about the number of people we got, but they are questionnaires. Yeah, powered, um, by the way, and you did just kind of briefly mention that. Powered means there is enough people in the study to notice if there is a difference. Because if you've got 10 people in a study, you may not pick up on a significant difference if only you know, one or two of them 
have a change in outcome. But if you put a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand into a study, you're much more likely to pick up on differences between groups. Right. Right. Uh, and, and there are some other studies that are good, but again, a little bit inconclusive for what they were trying to study. So there was a study in Frontiers in Cardiovascular Medicine, a 2019 study called Effects of Exercise to Improve Cardiovascular Health. And they found that uh, individuals with metabolic syndrome, so your typical diabetes, you know, obesity, hyperlipidemia, so people with high cholesterol and things like that, who participated in a four-month program of either a diet or exercise intervention had reduced adiposity, so reduced fat, decreased blood pressure, uh, and lower LDL, and more favorable uh, lipid profiles in general. Um, but the, again, part of the, this study included dietary inter intervention. And what I've also often found is that mm. people who exercise, when you get on a, an exercise program, what, what are you trying to do typically? You're trying to get healthy, right? Mo well, depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> most people though. I, I think that most people are in general trying to increase their overall health. I don't think most people are exercising with the, you know, the idea of going out and running a marathon. There are certain people, certainly people who do oh, that. No. My thought is that a lot of people are exercising explicitly to try and lose weight. Sure, but okay, but even that's a good point. So they're trying to lose weight, but what often what often follows the dietary or the uh, the exercise intervention? They're also doing some kind of dietary change. They're doing mm -hmm. something to lose weight. It's not people usually aren't just exercising in a vacuum. There's usually you know I need to work on True. this. I need to eat better. I need to blah, whatever. People are trying to get overall. So it's really hard to to study exercise in a vacuum. Uh, because it's yeah, it's a gateway drug. Yeah, right. We <laughs> yes, um, but they they did propose some methods of overall improvement for people's health, uh, for the, you know physio physiologically why people would get healthier uh, when when they're exercising. One would be vasodilation and angiogenesis. So we know that uh, another study actually looked at this. You get a post exercise hypotension, so you actually get a post exercise blood pressure drop when you work out, it's usually on the range of five systolic over three diastolic. So it's not a massive yeah, Let's just pause drop. for a minute though. And just, cause when you said vasodilation and angiogenesis, just tell me what that means. So vasodilation is what would lead to low blood pressure. So your blood vessels dilate. And we've talked about that before, uh, where even a little dilation in your blood vessel will cause a significant drop in your blood pressure because you're increasing the radius of your, of your blood vessels. So you'll get, what law is that again? You know this better than I do. Is that pla Planck's Passois? law? Passois. Passois. I don't know. I got to study French. Yeah, you do. We we have plenty of time to study. That's <laughs> next to my list of things to study is French. Uh, <laughs> I don't... Beautiful language. Not for me. Not going to be good at it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you get vasodilation. So you, your blood vessels dilate, your blood pressure drops. And angiogenesis is the production of new blood vessels. Uh, so if you're creating blood vessels in tandem and they're running in parallel with each other, typically you'll get lower blood pressure because you have the same amount of blood flow going through separate channels, which will then lower the blood pressure. Uh, in general, that's a good thing. There are situations where that's bad. That's not something we're going to talk about now. Uh, but in general, you get a five over three blood pressure reduction, which doesn't sound huge. But if you think about, you know, the number of, you know, we, we say like 120 is normal blood pressure, 130 is prehypertension. So that five is actually a pretty big drop. It's halfway to get you from prehypertension to normal blood pressure. Um, so it's not it's not nothing. Uh, you also get an increase in nitric oxide. And if you go back and listen to our old podcast, you'll know that nitric oxide is actually one of the, com the chemicals in our body that helps us decrease 
our uh, blood pressure by helping the blood vessels dilate. Uh, it will also help yeah, decrease. It's one of those superheroes. It is. Yeah. If you can get increased nitric oxide, aside from just taking nitroglycerin in your diet, uh, <laughs> that would be very beneficial for you in the long run. Uh, and you also get decreased blood viscosity through the action of, of nitrous uh, oxide, which will help prevent things like strokes and heart attacks. Um, less sludge. Yes, you get less sludging. Another interesting thing you get is actually increased leptin sensitivity. And leptin is a hormone that is secreted that will inhibit your hunger and therefore increase your weight loss among some other mechanisms. But one of the main things it does is inhibits hunger. Uh, it's one of those compounds that's secreted when you're eating after a certain time limit. It's one of those things, reasons why we tell you to eat slowly. Because if you eat slowly, you give leptin that time to accumulate in your blood. After you started eating, your body goes, hey, this person's eating. And about 15 minutes, <laughs> they should be done eating. And so leptin gets secreted, and then your satiety signal is hit, uh, irrespective of how much you've eaten. There are multiple ways where- 15 minutes? Yeah, I think it's like 15 or 20 minutes. Like, that's it. Like, that's when your leptin starts speak, uh, spiking, if I remember correctly. Oh, when it starts to... Okay. I thought you were saying, 15 minutes, you should be done eating. <laughs> what? No. Actually, Nina and I... Nina, this is the word. I don't even know why I'm admitting this on here. Nina and I timed ourselves eating the other day. We finished our dinner <laughs> in like... I think it was like 13 minutes we finished our dinner. And we're like, man, we have got to slow down. Were you like, racing? Was this a competition? No. I Part of that is... I So, in fairness... I don't think we eat very much. So I think we just like kind of finish our dinner quickly because then we don't have like a massive amount of food that we eat. But that being said, I still think we need to slow down a little bit. Um, yeah. According to this factoid, you, how do you even get full? There's no leptin. <laughs> I get full later. I, so I will often will stop before I'm full <laughs> because I know that I've eaten enough. But anyway, uh, leptin is a, a good thing to have running around, um, especially when increasing your sensitivity to it because then you'll stop eating as much, which for most people is a good thing. Um, you also get uh, increased parasympathetic tone. And again, going back to our old podcast, the parasympathetic is going to be the relaxation, the calm, the not fight or flight, uh, kind of the, 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 the rest, rest and digest. So this has done a couple of things. Uh, Just you know, so everyone knows, that is an oversimplification, but go ahead. Yeah, uh, for sure. It's always an oversimplification when we're talking about these really complicated Systems. Anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I, we could talk about the parasympathetic and you know the the all the effects that that has on you over the long term. Uh, but for this, basically, it sets your resting heart rate down. It increases your resting heart rate variability, which has been considered by most people a good thing. Uh, it's not necessarily totally agreed upon, but it seems that in general, uh, in, increased heart rate variability is associated with positive cardiovascular outcomes uh and less arrhythmogenicity uh which is basically a decreased likelihood that your heart will have weird rhythms afib or vtac or svt or whatever um so overall exercise by setting you at a calmer resting state is better for you does that make sense yeah i can feel that all right you, you feel, <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're very calm right now. I'm still amped because I haven't worked out today. Uh, so we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll have to beat in the middle in a little bit here. Um, and the last thing it does, I shouldn't say the last thing, but the last thing that this article talked about it doing was maintaining your antioxidant capacity of your mitochondria. So your mitochondria, as mm -hmm. you might know, are kind of the powerhouse parts of your cells. That's what they always talk about. They, they create the energy and they are what's responsible for uh, basically uh, taking out your reactive oxygen species and your antioxidants um, 
And so when your mitochondria are more active, you're getting rid of some of those free radicals and you're actually going to decrease your susceptibility to highly damaging particles, these reactive oxygen species as we call them. Uh, and you're going to get decreased aging. So people will age slower, uh, both probably I would assume externally, but more importantly in our case internally. So your, your organs will be functioning like they're younger, uh, which is obviously a good thing. So the effects aren't... Um, Wait, can I interject for a second here? Yeah. Because we just, yeah, not too many months ago, we read, reviewed in the newsletter an article talking about just that thing, which is they took um, two groups of people in two different ages. There were those, if I remember correctly, over the age of 70 and a group of people that were mainly in their 20s. And they started off just comparing how much mitochondrial activity there was in them. And as you might guess, the 20-year-old doing way better than the older people, right? But then they took those older people through exercise regimens. They took uh, one through aerobic activity and one through strength training activity. And at the end of this, the aerobic activity or the high-intensity interval training group that was doing it um, had, surprisingly, the same mitochondrial activity as the 20-year-olds. In the 70-year-olds. Mm-hmm. That's just wild. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. It is. So exercise. And just... You look like... Yeah. But strength training might still be good. I don't like how they did that arm of the trial. But workout is my point. We'll talk about... <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, there's, there's some nuances to that that we'll get to. Uh, but yeah, the... Yeah, the effects of exercise really can't be overstated from that standpoint. Yeah, you really you really are pushing your body to act younger, which is awesome uh, since age is a risk factor for almost every disease uh, that's life-threatening. I yeah, see. I can't think of one. I was about to say, I, I could tell you were trying to think of one that it wasn't. Uh, yes. Yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> um, yeah, so you, you definitely, definitely want to get moving. So let me just pause and ask and partially answer this question, which is how bad is it really to be sedentary? If all I really do is, you know, I sit down, I do some work, I walk to the kitchen, I walk to the bathroom, I walk to my living room, uh, I get to my car, walk in the office a little bit, but mostly I'm sitting and not doing much. How bad is that really? Are you asking this question with an answer already holstered? Is that what I'm trying to understand here? Yeah, 100%. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll give my side of it first, and then I'm curious to hear what you have to say. But uh, so the CDC looked at this, um, and this is in 2018, they released 8.3% uh, of deaths were attributed to inadequate levels of physical activity. That's a lot. Uh, and the... Wait, say that number again. 8.3% of, of all deaths were attributed to inadequate levels of physical That's activity. Big. Yeah, uh, especially... So the... Statistical significance was not present for people less than 40 years old, which makes sense. Uh, you know, you can be physically inactive at that age and your body can probably still handle it. But as you get older, as we just talked about, you have increasing risk for pretty much everything. And the significance jumps up uh, after the age of 40 and continues to increase as you get older. Um, and then you can go to the CDC and, and look this up. But basically, the number of people who were physically active uh, were much more likely to live than people who weren't once you got to that age and they have, they have all this really complicated bar graph showing it. Um, but yeah, that, that's the bottom line from, from that perspective. Yeah. And so when I 
look at this. There's a study called the Aerobic Center Longitudinal Study, which did not look at other things such as diet or other factors. It looked at mainly cardiorespiratory fitness or how much people moved and exercised and how fit they were. And what they found was that the number one cause of preventable deaths for all-cause mortality or dying for any good reason, or sorry, not any good reason, any reason, <laughs> over 40,000 men and women, the number one cause of that was low cardiorespiratory fitness or just being in poor shape. So worldwide, though, it's thought that physical inactivity is the fourth leading risk factor for mortality. Worldwide, fourth leading. So like you said, that's over 8% of deaths. And so if you're just trying to say, okay, well, what percent of this kind of disease might we think is coming predominantly from physical inactivity, it's thought that about 6% of heart disease is coming from it, 7% of type 2 diabetes, and 10% of breast and colon cancers. And that's just that example. I'm sure if we tried to break it out into other groups, it would be even more. But just to put it this way, that's on par with smoking. Yeah. Well, especially smoking decreases. The prevalence of smoking has been decreasing. Yeah, that's true. I think physical activity has been overtaking that now. Yeah. Because I think our level of inactivity is increasing. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that absolutely makes sense. Okay, the last study that I want to mention before we finish up here uh, and go into our next entry here, which we'll talk a little bit more about the actual exercise itself. They they did do a study, um, and it was a one-year study of non-obese people. This was in 2007 in the American Journal of Physiologic Endocrinology and Metabolism. Uh, not a journal I'm familiar with, but the what they found was that there was a 16, uh, people who had a 16 to 20% increase in energy expenditure of any form of exercise with no diet intervention specifically. Again, hard to know because they say no diet intervention, but they've had people who are increasing their activity by one fifth. So do those people also change their diet? Again, I think I would, but that's just me. Uh, But they resulted in a 22.3% decrease in body fat mass and reduced LDL cholesterol, uh, improved HDL, and decreased CRP concentrations. That's C-reactive protein, which is kind of an inflammatory marker in the body. Um, which are all obviously risk factors associated with cardiovascular disease. There was no actual measurement of cardiovascular disease incidents or bad outcomes here. These are all specifically looking at numbers that would maybe imply a benefit to cardiovascular disease. Um, and over what time frame? One year. Okay. Uh, so it, it kind of goes against, they didn't specifically say that they lost weight. Um and it was only 29 women and 17 men. And they were all about the average age of about 57. And their BMIs were about 27. So they were not, you know, morbidly obese people. They, again, had decreased in body fat, not necessarily body weight. Um, there was a little bit of weight loss, but the bigger improve, improvement was among, among body fat, which is obviously still very important. Well, it's more important. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um so definitely good outcomes here, but it's also one year of an exercise program, it, 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 but it shows it can be done, but it's a small study. It, it kind of goes, what I was saying before, kind of goes against what we're used to hearing that diet doesn't 
our diet seemed to affect weight loss more than exercise, which has been kind of corroborated by most studies. But the body fat percentage, I think, in this part is a little bit more exciting. And the, the other markers are kind of nice. You actually see like, hey, you've got you've got a drop in your your LDL, uh, you've got a drop in your CRP. And again, how much of those were related to other lifestyle effects that they were making, I don't really know. Um, but it's hard to argue that the exercise didn't have something to do with it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the argument with that I would make with weight loss specifically and exercise is not that exercise isn't going to help. It's just not going to help long term with overall weight loss mm-hmm. and because your body will become more efficient. You'll plateau. And these people may have plateaued. And, and some of that, you know, if, if as we talked about before, you really get an increase in leptin sensitivity, uh, so your your hunger drive is down, maybe these people are just consuming less calories as well. Um, but regardless, the decision to start working out and being active makes a difference. Whether or not you want to chalk it up to exercise, I think is irrelevant. Uh, the fact that you're making that change mm-hmm. is going to, if nothing else, lead you to other changes that are also good. And honestly, they're kind of instrumental. They, they go hand in hand. Uh, it's part right. of a healthy lifestyle. You know, what we always talk about, it's not just one of the, these pillars, it's, it's putting them all together. Yeah. If a stool's missing a leg, it's going to fall over. <laughs> At least be really uncomfortable. I mean, who likes a wobbly stool? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's good for your core. Maybe. That's a good point. Exercise, bottom line, get a wobbly stool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all I have for for the statistics about this uh we'll we'll get into the next one we'll talk about specifically how to exercise and what exactly that all means um but do you have anything else no that's it just makes me think of one really interesting study that i just want to mention i think it was done in the early 2000s by a guy named hambrecht that took two groups of people with known coronary artery disease mainly men i think it was about 100 people broke them up into two groups one group got angioplasty, or they got stented. They had their blood vessels opened up to make less obstruction and let that blood flow even better. And that was compared to the other group, which biked every day for 20 minutes. Now, commonly, if you ask a regular person, and even just me, right off the bat, what do you think would be more effective? I would say, I think the stent may be more effective. What would your guess be? I mean, yeah, you're fixing the problem, right? I mean, I already know the answer ahead of time, to, to be fair. But intuitively, <laughs> you would think that you're fixing the root of the problem by opening up that blood vessel problem solved. Right. And as so many things go, intuition doesn't play out, and that's why we have studies. So the group that survived for a year with significantly fewer heart-related events was the bike group, not the stent group. 88% of people in the biking group, went 12 months without any heart-related events. Well, only 70% of people in the stented group did that. And if you look at other things besides that, the bicycle group had better resting heart rates by a bit. They were able to tolerate exercise more. They were able just to do more than the other group. And this is just 20 minutes a day of bicycling versus an actual physical intervention. Well, and which is amazing. And not even and not even talking about the benefits of the exercise after they've had the stent. I mean, if you can prevent that stent in the first place and not have to be on mm-hmm. dual antiplatelet therapy for a year if you presuming you get a drug eluting stent, which is what most of us are using now. 
yeah, you could do a lot of but I mean, imagine not having to be on, you know, five different drugs because you had a stent placed, you know, and of yeah. course you're, you're going to be happier and hopefully healthier if you can make those changes and, and avoid all that stuff to begin with. And, and didn't even look at the complications of say being on right. multiple things that thin your blood out or any of the side effects of the medications or any of that stuff. This was strictly looking at heart related events. Yeah. And that's, again, not to say that if you're, you know, having an, a heart attack that you shouldn't be getting a stent. But the no, point no, is... Two that, different cases. Yeah. Way to underline right. that. Right. But still, yeah, I mean, if you can prevent all that stuff in the first place, the, uh, you're going to be so much better off. It's not like just eat and drink and be merry. And then when you have an obstruction in your artery, go get a stent and then go back to eat, <laughs> be merry, and then kind of do what you want and live your life. And there's not going to be any significant, there's a reason why when you follow up with your cardiologist, they're still telling you, stop smoking. Are you exercising? Are you doing your rehab? Are you eating right? They know like you're, we all know that, that you can't just continue to do what you were doing. And that, you know, we fixed the problem. We didn't, we didn't fix the problem. We stopped you from dying. Now you need to right. continue to do things to address the underlying issues. Yeah. This palliation, this is buying time. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a that's a good thing to bring up. It's a very good study. So yeah. it's one of many that show these benefits. And I think we've all had patients that have come in and had things like stable angina and are not working out whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and, and so they come in, they say, every time I go up the stairs, my chest hurts. But that's as much activity as they're doing all day. They're going right. up the stairs. Yeah. And you think that if you can get these people some, you know, cardiac rehab and, you know, get some angiogenesis and get some increased blood flow to the heart, get your collaterals going, um, you know, decrease the the vasoconstriction so you can open up those blood vessels to the heart. All of a sudden, people walking up the stairs probably feel great. And that's probably true of peripheral vascular disease as well. I mean, you and I have heard people talk about that, people who've had to walk, you know, from their parking lot to their job and they have had to stop five times and they changed their diet and they changed their exercise because their legs were hurting so bad. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they're able to walk the entire time and they're, they're going hiking and they're doing great and they didn't have any interventions. So yeah, these, these yeah. things are... Or they're running races. Right. So yeah, these things are real. But anyway, we're going to talk about more about that uh, next time. I think that we covered everything that I wanted to cover. We didn't cover everything because we could never cover everything, but we covered, <laughs> <laughs> we covered some, some good stuff here, I think. Um, yeah. This is a good foray into the power that movement has. What happens if yes. you don't get enough of it? And what can happen if you do? Yes. So until next time, uh, keep working on making some changes. Uh, let us know if you have questions. Visit our website, cprhealthclinic.com. We're still seeing patients uh, and we're still offering our mindfulness course. So you can sign up for that. And remember, if you like this podcast, give us five stars and tell other people about it. It's helpful. So until next time, remember that the way you live can save your life. <laughs>